Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for uh, joining us uh, for our show today. Um, I want to start by saying we're having some technical difficulties on this Monday morning (laughs) as we come to you live. We're going to get them all worked out in a few minutes. I was sort of, as uh, Chase McGee was uh, working with Victoria Evans Cash, our engineer, to try to get everybody straightened out, I couldn't help but think of the... um, Arnold Schwarzenegger trend, uh, uh, film, Revenge of the Machines. And that, that's what we seem to be having today with our technology. So uh, I do know that we have Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter and columnist, uh, with us today. You uh, read Patricia's work in The Jolt at AJC.com every day. And uh, her column, Political Insider, appears in the newspaper on Wednesdays and Sundays. Patricia, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. And I see you're, because I'm looking at you on Zoom, you're in your car. What are you waiting to cover? I am in my car. I'm driving down to McIntyre, Georgia, which is in Wilkinson County. And that is where John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock will both be today. Um, They are breaking ground on a new sewer system. It's the county's first public sewer system. Uh, people down there, as many people in rural counties do, uh, use uh, septic tanks, individual water systems, and say so this is part of that infrastructure spending that Democrats have been so eager to uh, secure and spend and now uh, make people I'm going to be down there uh, talking to them. Well, thank you for uh, uh, taking the time to be with us as you head down to South Georgia. Uh, we're going to talk about John Ossoff in a little while, something that you reported on him in the jolt uh, this morning, but we'll hold that uh, for a few minutes from now. Um, let me see who else we might have with us at this point. Uh, Adrian Jones, professor of political science at Morehouse College and director of pre-law there. Are you with us, Adrian? Adrian's not with us yet. Mary Margaret Oliver, have you been able to join us yet, Representative Oliver? Or Edward Lindsay? All right, we're going to hold off. Um, because uh, at this point, we're still waiting for everybody else. So, Patricia, let's you and I get started while they try to work out the technical uh, problems. I want to start with a story that the New York Times reported, excuse me, sometime on Friday. Uh, And uh, for me, this was a significant development in a story that we here in Georgia have been following for quite some time. And that story is the fact that early in 2021, while Donald Trump was continuing to dispute the results of the Georgia presidential election, uh, Sidney Powell and a group of Trump allies uh, arranged to go into the county election office, including the head of the election office, who was, by the way, a fake delegate, um, and, and breach the voting security systems and extract sensitive voter data from the system, presumably with the intention of finding some proof that Dominion's machines had rigged the election for uh, uh, Donald Trump. The Times reports now that it appears that Trump himself may very well have taken part in a discussion about breaking into the machines in Coffee County and doing the same thing up in Michigan, where they also thought they could find uh, uh, evidence of uh, the machines uh, working against Trump. That, that's a big breakthrough in this story, it seems to me, Patricia. Yeah, and there is additional reporting on that um, Coffee County breach that we can talk about as well. But for the New York Times now to be reporting that Donald Trump is directly connected to these conversations um, about what happened in Coffee County. That is a crucial piece of information and the type of thing where um, if there is concrete evidence of that, that prosecutors can use, that really speaks to the kind of broad conspiracy that somebody like Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, 
is looking to um, to demonstrate. Uh, you were talking about a RICO situation, meaning racketeering, something, a crime involving multiple people uh, that goes all the way up to the top, apparently. You know, we'll have to see um, how much of this really holds up in terms of Donald Trump's direct involvement in it. But this is the first time we have seen his direct involvement, in, particularly in that Coffee County case, but also with pieces of this broad, uh, broader potential conspiracy. Um, the second piece of reporting that came out on Friday as well is that the effort was not only to flip the results potentially for Donald Trump um, in the presidential race, which he lost. But also there are text messages that CNN has uncovered that the group of people, they're called the Cyber Ninjas, <laughs> the security company, the quote security company, um, who was a part of this, hired by Sidney Powell, the Trump campaign attorney, and other Trump operatives who went to Coffee County. Uh, there was discussion, these text messages, of also working to overturn the Senate race of John Ossoff, when John Ossoff defeated David Perdue in that Georgia January runoff. There were two runoffs, Ossoff and Perdue. Uh, and uh, Warnock and Leffler, uh, Ossoff's race in particular is a part of this text chain. And so it has one Trump associate saying to the other, do we want to use this now? Literally, it's so specific, it's almost like the Keystone Cops. Do we want to use this information to overturn the Senate race, or should we wait for a bigger uh, kind of revelation, wait for the larger case? So they are looking at potentially flipping that Ossoff race, again, that would be illegal, of course, because John Ossoff won. Um, but crucially, that would have kept Senate control for Republicans. And that's why those two races in Georgia were so important. And um, uh, uh, here's what the Times says specifically about uh, Trump's potential involvement. A number of Trump aides and allies have recounted a lengthy and acrimonious meeting in the Oval Office on December 18th, 2020, which one member of the House January 6th committee would later call the craziest meeting of the Trump presidency. During the meeting, then-President Trump presided as his advisors argued about whether they should seek to have federal agencies voting machines to analyze them for fraud. He was dissuaded from doing that. We've heard about this meeting before, uh, but as Patricia points out, if instead of that, uh, Trump and his allies uh, directed uh, his uh, folks to break into uh, voter records in Michigan and in Georgia, uh, we'll see whether or not there can be any proof of a conspiracy involved in that. I'll tell you what we're going to do. I think that our team has worked out, resolved the problems uh, that we're having bringing in uh, our other panelists. Uh, but the best way to do it, I think, is going to be, Chase, let's get a break out of the way right now and We'll make the changes that we need to make on our end and come back and continue Political Rewind in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Well, I think we, uh, on our end, uh, Victoria, Chase, Natalie, and I have all got our adrenaline going this morning as we've tried to resolve our technical problems, and I think we've done it. So welcome back to Political Rewind. You've already heard this morning from uh, from, uh, Patricia Murphy of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So let me bring in our other panelists. Um, Adrian Jones, professor of political science and director of the pre-law program at Morehouse College, Adrian, thank you for working with us to make sure we can get you on the air today. How are you, Adrian? Good morning, Bill. I am fantastic and amazing. (laughs) Well, of course you are. Uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver is back with us, too. Uh, Mary Margaret, how's, how's life for you right now? Good morning. I'm loving this beautiful, beautiful spring weather. Uh, Look forward to our meeting this morning. I hope y'all can hear me. We hear you just fine. And Edward Lindsay, 
former uh, state representative from uh, Atlanta and now the director of the Georgia Governmental Affairs uh, branch of Denton's uh, uh, is with us. Hi, Edward. How are y'all today? I'm uh, I'm trying to work my way up to to uh, outstanding, but I can't quite get there yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, while we were having difficulties, Patricia and I were able to start talking about the story that first the New York Times broke on Friday, which suggested it is possible that Donald Trump, as president, was uh, involved in an effort to breach the voter data uh, systems in Coffee County, Georgia, as well as precincts in Michigan, where they were hoping to find proof, evidence, that uh, the Dominion machines were somehow rigged in favor of Joe Biden. Mary Margaret, what I think is interesting about, first of all, Trump won Coffee County by a big, big margin. <laughs> and but But that's secondary to the bigger story, which is if, in fact, there is proof that Trump actually was part of the conversation about Coffee County, um, this is going to add to Fonnie Willis's uh, tools in uh, determining what to do about in, an indictment, yes? Yes. <clears throat> Conspiracy is a very fact-based, very complicated, in most cases, uh, endeavor. And if there's additional evidence coming from Coffee County, uh, that will be important to her. We we know that Donald Trump just is on the phone all day, all day with somebody uh, in a very irresponsible conversations is what we've learned over many years. So the likelihood of him participating in the Coffee County or the Michigan activity uh, could be very relevant to D.A. Willis. Edward, as I bring you in, let me also add what we told our listeners is that um, uh, CNN uh, over the weekend also broke a story saying it wasn't just the Coffee County breach was not just about Trump and Biden. It may have been an effort to prove that John Ossoff's victory over um, uh, <laughs> David Perdue uh, was uh, fake, too. Edward? Yeah, that's an interesting addition to the issue. Uh, what I really would love to make sure that the that the, our listeners know is that that uh, this there is an ongoing investigation uh, taking place uh, at the uh, instigation of the state election board. Our chair, I'm, I serve on the board, and and our chair, uh, Judge uh, Bill Duffy, uh, uh, sent a request, specific request to the GBI to open an investigation last July, and so that is going on. These sort of investigations often take time. Uh, but it is something that uh, that the GBI uh, is taking a hard look at. And also the state well, election I, board, once it conclude, concludes its investigation, the state election board will also be taking a look at it. Uh, Edward, let me ask you another question, uh, because as I'm sure you know, uh, last week, uh, the AJC reported that it's been eight weeks, eight months uh, since the request for an investigation began, and as a member of the state board, which I always should be uh, mentioning when I introduce you, are you concerned at all that this thing hasn't moved forward eight months later? Eight, eight months in an investigation is not necessarily too long, to be candid with you. Uh, sometimes these sort of things, particularly when you're talking about uh, cyber issues in which you have to bring in experts to do a forensic analysis, it does take time. And I know that uh, that uh, that can be frustrating to a, a lot of our listeners on why they can't get something done quicker. But eight months is not necessarily too long when it comes to an investigation of this kind of technical nature. Uh, Adrian, we also pointed out before you were able to join us that one of the people uh, caught up in this was the director of the um, Coffee County election uh, uh, team, their office, uh, who is also a fake elector for Donald Trump. So um, give us your thoughts on this, Adrian. I guess it's, for me, another example of how um, Trump um, and his folks have mastered this art of reverse blame and um, victim offenses. They while at the same time they are doing exactly the things that they are complaining are being done to them. Um, you know, I feel like even if eight months isn't too long, all of this is a long time for us to hang in the balance about whether these things that are clearly untrue are untrue. 
um, you know, the damage is done to some degree simply by looking in Coffee County and in Michigan for switch votes. Um, we see what's happening in the Dominion um, versus Fox decision. Um, you know, it all still makes it seem as if there are problems with elections in Georgia, for example, and there simply are not. Yeah, Patricia, I think that's the crucial takeaway beyond what, the indictments that may be coming, but from Fonnie Willis's office, it, it, confidence in elections in this state and elsewhere has been eroded uh, uh, dramatically. I think it's safe to say. Oh, I think it's very safe to say that, of course, particularly among Donald Trump supporters. Um, We are going to talk, I know, about a story a little bit later about GOP elections around the state, uh, people to chair um, precincts for uh, the state Republican Party. A number of those people who won the district elections over the weekend ran on the promise to get to the bottom of the stolen elections. Um, There is still this pervasive, insistent uh, storyline among Donald Trump supporters, driven principally by Donald Trump himself, that the 2020 election was stolen. So now you have uh, one of the state's two parties, the election apparatus, now being um, controlled by people specifically because they have promised to continue to push this, well, they all, they believe the election uh, was stolen narrative, the false narrative, which is a lie, um, but they also are continuing to push for changes to laws here in Georgia, um, changes to access to voting that it, are all driven by that lie that originated a long time ago, but is continuing to spin off more and more effects. It's a very, very real kind of damage that's been done to the state, and it's very difficult for anybody in um, Ed Lindsay's position or um, uh, Representative Oliver's position to tell anybody who believes the tr- that the election was stolen to tell them that it was not stolen. Yeah, uh, Edward, I was going to turn to you and I'd ask yeah. you just that very yeah, question. It, First it, of all, it, it, we should... It, it, well, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, it, it has been a, a, an interesting and I use the term game loosely, uh, 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 whack the mole almost uh, when it comes to complaints that we've seen over the last uh, two years uh, since the 2020 elections, where, you know, we there's one conspiracy that comes up, the, the Dominion conspiracy comes up, that gets knocked down. Then we have another conspiracy comes up regarding the, uh, the boxes uh, that were put out there. Uh, that was put out there and that's been knocked down and and you know and it is somewhat of a frustrating thing in that we do have a, a large number of people that are convinced of a uh of, of something and doesn't seem like any facts are going to change their mind about it uh and so you know but it is going to be something that we're going to have to continue to do uh, i was uh encouraged by despite the this ongoing uh claims uh, that we keep hearing that uh, the the voters in georgia nevertheless did turn out in record <laughs> numbers in the 2022 election and so um that part was an encouraging part that folks are still willing to participate but it is something that has been very frustrating uh when it comes to trying to, to knock down these conspiracies mary margaret what i what i puzzle about is what percentage of the Republican voters truly believe any of this? Even when they're making these allegations in my presence in the state capitol or when I'm hearing about them um, from CNN, I always go, Do, who really believes that? And who thinks that this is, this is an appropriate way to uh, publicize conspiracy for political purposes. So I'm confused by that. And and I don't know where to go to have any hope that all of this is going to change in the near or distant future. Just seems pretty discouraging to me. And if I were the, in the leadership position, if I were in the Keep leadership talking. position, I would have a Republican Party, of course, I'd have no idea what to do. But they seem to be going with this artifice. Adrian? Yes. Um, I just want to connect this to the... I'm echoing also. I'm echoing. I just want to connect this 
to um, the CRT push. I mean, when these things happen, they become a part of the public record, which allows you to misrepresent history, essentially. Um, you know, if you are deciding that there is any kind of worth in these challenges to the 2020 election, you know, an alternate view is that the election was in fact stolen. Those of us who are here now and are clear that these things are untrue, we have some leverage, but over time, you know, these things calcify. And, um, you know, that's very dangerous, I think, for our country, particularly right now. Um, well, I think, Patricia, uh, that does lead us into a, a column that uh, you uh, published. It was in the newspaper uh, over the weekend um, because it has to do with the settlement of the Fox News Dominion lawsuit. Uh, Fox News being sued, of course, as I think most people know, for spreading conspiracy theories that they knew were not true about the so-called stolen election. And and so many of the reports on this $787 million settlement that Fox agreed to suggested this was a great victory because there's never been a settlement of, of that size. It really is a rebuke of Fox News. But I kind of came down thinking you were spot on in your column about this, and I'll start with you on this. You you say Dominion's defamation case was resolved when Fox agreed to pay the company $787 million to settle out of court, but $787 million isn't nearly enough for the damage that Fox News did, including here in Georgia. So tell us about what you uh, think about that. Yeah, so my thinking is that um, the the $787 million, of course, is a huge settlement. It's less than what Fox has in cash reserves. But it my column is really based on my interactions with Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson when I used to do quite a bit of Fox News um, appearances. And there was... I I felt at the time, and this was, I mean, this was a long time ago, 15 years ago. So even then, it seemed that Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity were sort of playing parts. It was, they did not seem to believe off air what they were saying on air. That was just my personal impression. But so when I was reading through the text messages of what Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson really thought about Sidney Powell, when they continue to have Sidney Powell on as um not just a guest but as a as the one presenting donald trump's case uh on air they said you know we've always respected sydney powell's work here is sydney powell to discuss these details that donald trump is alleging um and uh then agreeing with a lot of what she was saying behind the scenes hannity and carlson were saying this woman's crazy what a wackadoo she's insane she can't be on our air so they were not leveling with Fox viewers what they knew and what they believed about this woman who's being presented as credible. And they asked her for evidence. She didn't present it, but she continued to appear over and over. And the reason to me that that was important is because of what all of us in Georgia were going through simultaneously. And those allegations on Fox News that were amplified and intensified also on Newsmax and OANN, but very few people watch those. I think we know that um, all of that reporting on Fox News and specifically the platform that Hannity and Carlson gave her when they knew she wasn't credible um, was driving the the intensity in Georgia to have Senate hearings, to have recounts, to all of all of these efforts to undermine the election were really made possible, in my opinion, by Fox. Um, I want to keep going, I'm gonna, but I'm going to say something on air that's really for all of you who are on the show today. If you are still using both your phone and Zoom, don't use your phone anymore. It may be why you're hearing uh, some echoing. Just hang up the phone line you were using, and I hope we'll correct that problem. Mary Margaret, here's one of the things that I thought uh, about the, the settlement. I think many people out there who were disgusted with the way Fox continued to perpetuate these lies— was Dominion was going to be the truth seeker 
Dominion was going to hold them accountable, and through testimony, that very well might have happened. But Dominion's decision to accept an enormous settlement, I think, tells us something basically much more simple. They're a business. Uh, They didn't know how much money they could win in a jury trial. And so they accepted the outcome as a business, not as necessarily truth seekers. And I think that frustrated Mary Margaret a lot of people in the end. Fox didn't even have to apologize on air uh, for their conspiracy theories. Before I uh, answer your question, I want to raise again a question that I ask frequently. How does Sidney Powell still have a license to practice law? I don't understand that. But but in your question, I think you're absolutely right. There's a frustration that we want truth. We want truth and we want the our media to tell us the truth and not manufacture evidence for the purpose of ratings and money. As a lawyer, uh, I am disinclined to criticize settlements of other people that have uh, come to an agreement behind the closed doors. They're talking about financial matters and stockholders and future positions that I can't I can't evaluate from the outside. I will say this: I have a little bit of confidence that the other lawsuits against Dominion are going to result in. Uh, further uh, illustration of the totally false narrative that knowingly has been put forward in our country. And I believe it's going to continue to have an impact of hopefully waking people up, having their eyes opened and wanting to demand a greater level of clarity from our national media sources. I want to give uh, Adrian and Edward a chance to weigh in on this, but I'll tell you what, I want to get a break out of the way. We're a little late on that. So let's take our first break. We'll be back in a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Adrian Jones of Morehouse College, Edward Lindsay, former state representative from Atlanta and member of the state election board, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver and Patricia Murphy today. And before we go on, all four of you, Thank you for hanging in there with us. It's been a rough start for the day, but I'm grateful that this terrific panel is sticking with us. So, Edward, uh, and then Adrian, give us your thoughts on whether or not the fact that Fox News will continue. There's no reason to think they're going to change a whole lot um, at this point. They don't have to apologize on the air. So was this settlement, you're you're an attorney, was this settlement really enough Edward, you're on mute. Uh, yep, sorry. Uh, well, well, getting back to the point that Mary Margaret raised, uh, the fact of the matter is civil lawsuits are about uh, money and about damages. Uh, and uh, and Dominion uh, made a calculated business decision that the amount that was being offered uh, was, was enough. Uh, I'm not surprised that they settled. I'm surprised that Fox didn't settle earlier, uh, quite frankly, given the facts that did come out. Um, you know, whether it's enough or not, at the end of the day, you know, the question as to whether or not Fox will uh, change some of its uh, positions or, or some of its commentators will change will depend on the viewers that are listening. Uh, they will change when uh, the market requires them to change. And that's when viewers start to demand uh, something different. Uh, you know, and the the viewers and Fox are, you know, I think the statistics show that they're not necessarily monolithic. Uh, they are largely conservative, but not entirely uh, Trump supporters. And so that, that that's, that's the question. Uh, as shown from the uh, evidence that did come out, uh, these positions taken by Carlson and, and and some of the others were driven by the market. Uh, they're afraid, they're feared that they would lose market share uh, to other uh, entities out there uh, is what drove them to, uh, to, to, to take the positions they did and to continue to uh, put out the information that they did put out. So, 
uh, at the end of the day, it's going to be market forces. Uh, that, that That's the only thing that's really going to change uh, any uh, any uh, media outlet. Adrian? I agree. Um, you know, the settlement negotiation allows them to proceed as usual, right? There's no obligation for them to change what they're doing. Um, you know, it is beneficial in their minds to their market and to their shareholders. Um, you know, they might have to pay out additional money, and I think they will continue to appease their listeners and watchers. All right. Um, thank you for your observations about that. If you haven't read Patricia's column on this, uh, go to AJC.com. You'll find it uh, there. I think it's really worth your while. Uh, Patricia, the rift between Governor Kemp and the state Republican Party is obviously continuing uh, to widen. And uh, I think uh, the latest example of that, of course, is that Kemp has now announced he won't even attend the state Republican Party convention in June, which, for our listeners who may not uh, get that, uh, it's a big deal for the governor of the state in your party to not appear at the convention, although we should recall that a couple of years back, Kemp went to the convention and got booed. Uh, notwithstanding that, he's not going. And um, we see the rift widening because, as a, in some ways uh, because of elections that were held in a number of GOP districts this past weekend where far-right Republicans won election. Uh, let's talk about that for a few minutes, Patricia. Yeah, so Kemp has been signaling for quite some time that he really is through with the GOP state party apparatus, not Republican voters or, you know, what he considers Republican principles, but this particular state party as it is right now, that had a lot to do with the fact that the state party chairman, David Schaefer, um, made it very clear that he uh, was not just supporting Donald Trump, but also David Perdue in his challenge to um, Governor Kemp, his primary challenge, which was just extremely unusual for a sitting governor to face this with his party. Um, and there has been a rightward shift of the activists and the GOP. It's not even to the right, but it's to Trump. So it's a very specifically Trump personality party, even more so than something. I talked to Republicans this morning. She's like, it's not far right. It's far Trump. It's just become this sort of cult of personality on in many port pieces of that party. So um Kemp is not going to go to the party convention, which is a really big deal for the sitting governor. Um, also, the state party had their uh, elections, their district elections over the weekend. And we talked about this, that a number of them who were elected are those Trump loyalists. Um, somebody like Candace Taylor, who ran for governor, um, her slogan was Jesus, guns and babies, uh, which I'm sure a lot of Republicans support Jesus, guns and babies. Um, but she also is a, extremely pro-Trump, um, very much digging into the to the um, election conspiracies. Um, so it's that ideological split. And I would say quickly, the second piece of this that's may even be more important is that the state party apparatus, especially on the Republican side, is just extremely dated. It's sort of like cable tv and phones attached to the wall it is this invention of you know decades and decades and decades ago that because of supreme court rulings and new election laws governor kemp can raise much more money than the state party he doesn't need the state party and at this point he also doesn't need the headache of showing up to that convention when it's trump loyalists who are just waiting for him just waiting to scream at him so He's made that choice, and I'm, I've talked to a lot of Republicans who just don't blame him. Well, at the same time, um, you've got a Candace Taylor who talked about Democrats as Luciferian in the way they deal with life and the like. Um, but at the same time, Edward, uh, Brian Kemp won an election by, what, eight points. Uh, clearly, Republicans yeah. who may be part of that, that far-right uh, fringe— probably cast votes for him, I would imagine. Well, let's back up. Uh, when it comes to uh, who uh, represents the party, uh, you best determine that in a primary. And that primary was determined uh, in an election between Purdue and uh, and Governor Kemp, in which I may have my numbers slightly wrong, but around 50 points 
yeah. <laughs> uh, different uh, in that election. So it is quite clear that uh, that uh, Governor Kemp uh, has the uh, support of the Republican uh, Party uh, as evidence in primaries, which also gets to a point that I, I like to try to remind folks of, of what, what party leadership is supposed to do. Party leadership is not supposed to uh, try to uh, dictate who should and should not be elected. Party leadership is supposed to accept the, the will of the voters and then to activate the base and help raise the money uh, to elect those people in the general election. That was the philosophy that uh, that successful Republican Party chairs have had in the past, such as uh, such as Sue Everhart, who uh, and and John Watson more recently. And uh, when party leadership starts to try to dictate who should and should not be uh, on the uh, November primary, that's when uh, the party uh, starts to lose control, whether it be the Republican or the Democratic Party. And that's what we're seeing. It Adrian? seems to me that uh, it seems to me that as uh, Patricia and Greg were saying on Politically Georgia the other day, you know, Kemp is solidly the standard bearer uh, in the state of Georgia. Um, so I find it interesting that the state party is really pro-Trump and is pushing against Kemp. I I guess I'm skeptical that that's going to work out um, in the end. Um, I was checking out their website and they have a quote by Edmund Burke that says, all that is necessary for evil to succeed is for good people to do nothing, which left me thinking that they think good people will do nothing. <laughs> um, I, it seems to me that since Kemp has some real independence from them, um, I'm hoping that that does not mean that the state is going to be taken over by Trumpers. And then the next election, we're going to have some um, neutralization of some of that. Mary Margaret, well, clearly, I, you're on the other side. <laughs> clearly, the state is taken over by Trumpers in the, if you believe any of the polling data, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Our Marjorie Taylor Greene is even eclipsing Trump for a, a Georgia phase to be totally irresponsible, totally mean spirited, and totally uh, unglued, un, unimpacted by facts. So, her emergence in Georgia uh, as a Georgia face and a national emergence is pretty scary. Uh, Governor, we on our side of the Capitol have to give Governor Kemp continuing credit for making wise political steps. I'm, I'm not, not too much on the keen on his policies, but his political skills are impressive. Uh, and moving away from David Schaefer, moving never mentioning the name Trump, and I have no idea what he tries, how he's moving away or trying to disassociate with Marjorie Taylor Greene, is, is proving to be pretty smart at this day uh, from the perspective of folks that see Georgia as a pivotal state, very important politically, and who wants to be and is, can be, possibly a responsible player on the national scene. Marjorie Taylor Greene, David Schaefer, uh, Sidney Powell, Coffee County, all takes away from Georgia being the responsible national leader that Kemp wants to demonstrate through his success politically. So I have to give him credit for taking these steps. I just can't really predict in any way, though. I cannot predict and have not been able to predict for five years when are the Republican voters, the more base, not the 3% or 5% that believe uh, the Jews sent um things into the forest in Colorado. I mean, people who don't believe that are the business community of Georgia who are going to vote Republican. When are they going to stand up and say enough is enough? And I don't have a prediction about that. If we assume, which I do, that Trump is going to be indicted at least twice more in 2023 before the 2024 election cycle gets very hot, uh, is that going to have an impact on the 60% plus of Georgia Republicans that say they support Trump? You know, Patricia, there's, I think, an interesting irony about uh, what 
um, Mary Margaret just talked about, which is the smart politics of Brian Kemp, which I think we all agreed is the case. Um, he has gotten an incredible amount of mileage by keeping his distance from Donald Trump. There are those in the national media who say he may be the face of the future of the Republican uh, Party. Um, and at the same time, right now, Ron DeSantis is under fire by the media uh, for mistakes he's made as he plots a potential run for president. And one of the things he's being heavily criticized for is pushing forward the a heartbeat law that is exactly like what we have in Georgia. DeSantis is being criticized for doing that, not understanding that the voters of this of, of the country are not interested in that kind of ban. And yet Brian Kemp, who signed the same kind of law, is seen as the future of the party. It's just an interesting irony. Well, I think those two gentlemen also have just very, very different styles. And um, Governor Kemp spread out his legislation, I think, very very strategically to say, okay, in the first term in 2019, we're going to do the heartbeat bill. Over the next couple of years, we're going to come back and do um, permitless carry. We're also going to do sort of X, Y, and Z. He's They appear to spread out those heavy lifts um, over a number of years. Ron DeSantis is doing the heartbeat bill. He's going after Disney. He is picking all of these huge high-profile fights at the same time. It leaves you wondering exactly who is this crazy person, honestly, going after Disney, perhaps locally in the Republican base makes sense if you really dig into it. But um, just going after the Disney brand over and over and hammering and hammering and hammering. I think that's a bigger piece of what people are worried about with Ron DeSantis, not to mention his table manners, which apparently are very strange. Um, So I think he's got kind of a weird reputation building up. Ryan Kemp, has been masterful with his politics. It's actually something to watch. I think a number of people underestimated Brian Kemp and the way he would uh, go through his trajectory as a leader and um, particularly as a politician. And um, it's some, it's really something to cover from the outside watching in, to be honest. Well, well, and to bring this around to the conversation we have been having a few minutes ago, Adrian, about the state party and uh, uh, Kemp going separate directions, um, we should point out that uh, the the current chairman of the party, David Schaefer, is one of the fake electors who could very easily end up being indicted by Fonnie Willis. So there's that side of the equation. And meanwhile, on the other hand, uh, Brian Kemp, having set up all these leadership committees, will raise untold amounts of money uh, to pursue whatever he sees his future as being in politics, Adrian. You're muted. Adrian, you're muted. I'm sorry. I agree that, um, you know, Kemp has a lot more savvy um, than it seems like Ron DeSantis does. You know, most of the state of Georgia does not want that heartbeat bill. I don't know this. I mean, Florida. I don't know about um, Georgia. I feel like people are more aligned uh, with the governor's position and with um, the speed and tact with which he signs those bills. Um, You know, if we're looking at the last election, you know, Trump didn't do well. So um, I think it's still the jury is out about, you know, how strong the Trump candidate is in 2024, whether he's indicted or not. I'm not sure which way that um, takes his political support. but I don't think it's a guarantee that Trump will win in the state, even though we have a significant number of Trump supporters. He did not do well um, in the midterms. Edward? Well, you know, when it comes to how um, Governor Kemp is being perceived versus uh, Ron DeSantis uh, in, in the press and, and in, in general commentary, a lot of it comes down to to style. You know, you know this cult, this group. We oftentimes talk about substance, but style is extremely important. And by style, I'm talking about, uh, you know, there's two ways for, for for a person to advance in politics. One is through uh, addition and multiplication, and the other one is through subtraction and division. 
subtraction and division are often very popular among the hardcore ideologues on both ends of the political spectrum. But for those of those that really want to try to build a broader base, uh, you know, it is the politics of multiplication and addition. And yes, uh, Governor Kemp has some very strong uh, conservative views, uh, but he does throw th- through the politics of multiplication and, and addition, and and also moving beyond that to to issues that would reach into uh, the more uh, middle uh, of the political spectrum. You know, keep uh-huh. in mind this is the same person that advanced the hate crimes bill, same person that advanced. Uh, a lot of the economic development that we're seeing here in Georgia, same person that has moved forward uh, with uh, with other legislation uh, to to reach a broader spectrum. He he practices the politics of addition and multiplication. All right, um, uh, Mary Margaret. Governor Kemp has has been very smart stylistically, uh, and it has earned a national platform, but his focus only on jobs and jobs and economy and economy and jobs and jobs and conservative values uh, is not supported, if you believe the polling data, by folks across Georgia. Those of us in the Capitol that are really worried about health care issues um, continue to marvel at the fact that we dropping into a smaller, smaller number of states that will not uh, participate in Medicaid in an effective way to cover the several hundred thousands of Georgians that aren't covered. Those are real economic issues, too. And the fact that his policies are on these fringe things when he comes to the Capitol about transgender children or about um, it's just odd to me that his policies are so out of link, and yet he's politically maneuvered himself to be a credible national voice. Will that continue to work for him? Something I can't answer. Well, I think, Mary Margaret, you've come back to the point I started with, which is I think um, that Brian Kemp, all of this about his political skills is taken um, as being correct. But I think it all comes back to just how many points bonus points you get by not being in the Trump camp right now, by in fact now beginning to say, let's move beyond Trump. It seems to erase some of the kinds of policy positions that you right. suggest he has not taken. All right, we're, we're really running out of time, but Mary Margaret, since the ball's in your court and since you are an attorney, the Supreme Court on Friday, the United States Supreme Court, uh, is going to allow Mifepristone to be in continue in use, I think I'm correct that it will be um, Matthew Kasmerick, of course, the federal judge in Texas, who said it should be blocked completely because the FDA didn't correctly vet the drug. Uh, that's been put on hold. Um, I think the appeals court, which tried to limit uh, mail order of the drug and the uh, uh, p- time that a woman can take it, I think from 12 weeks to 10 or whatever, that's on hold as well. It remains widely available. But Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito both dissented from that opinion, and it's clear they see this as an abortion issue, not a question about the FDA's powers to regulate drugs. Justice Roberts uh, reasserted some leadership in this uh, last week and uh, understood that the chaos created by the Clarence Thomas and Justice Alito positions to refute a 20-year-old FDA position was simply a, a bridge too far. The internal conflict of the United States Supreme Court is very troubling to those of us that care a lot about intellectual honesty and our constitutional discussions. So I'm hoping that Justice Roberts will continue to be able to maintain a more responsible leadership position. Patricia, uh, this now goes back to the Federal District uh, Appeals Court, the 5th District, a conservative court, uh, to make some decisions. It'll end up probably back in the U.S. Supreme Court. And Patricia, as we get come to the end of the show, it's a good moment to point out that NPR and Marist just released a poll which shows that 62% of those surveyed have little or no confidence in the integrity of the United States Supreme Court. Another of our institutions taking a tremendous hit in terms of public confidence, Patricia. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the more troubling polls that I've seen in a long time because um, we know that the ship has sailed on American. All right, Patricia, we're having you're breaking up pretty bad. Patricia, you're breaking up pretty badly. Uh, I think, Adrian, give us a quick comment on that because we're running out of time. I guess I'm also concerned about the fact that the court is not necessarily using its fundamentals. You know, I don't see standing in this case by doctors who might have to do surgery in the future. Um, you know, the statute of limitations for these, I understand that there were changes in 2016 and 2021, um, but the statute of limitations for this issue is six years. Um, and yet, um, also the Dodd decision, the law says that the law goes to the states for abortion. And here we are trying to open it up to the nation. Meantime, we are waiting for the Georgia State Supreme Court to give its ruling on whether the so-called heartbeat law is in fact legal and constitutional right here in the state of Georgia. We're completely out of time. I do appreciate Adrian Jones, Mary Margaret Oliver, Edward Lindsay, and of course, Patricia Murphy again. Thank you for a rough technical show, but it's been great to have all of you on. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and be kind to one another. Bye, everybody.